everybody. Welcome back to Passing Judgment, a podcast about politics and the law and a lot of things in between. I'm your host, Loyola Law School professor Jessica Levinson. I'm joined today by the show's co-host and producer, Joe Armstrong. And we are going to talk about day one of the Chauvin trial. Former officer Derek Chauvin has been charged with second and third degree murder and second degree manslaughter in the death of George Floyd. We're going to be talking about Georgia's new voting laws and whether or not they amount to, as President Biden said, uh, Jim Crow in the 21st century, or as Stacey Abrams said, Jim Crow 2.0. And if they do, are they in fact illegal under our current framework? So two big topics today. We are, as always, going to try and explain them clearly, and we love having you along for these conversations. Joe, what do we need to know in terms of background? I know we've all heard a lot about um, the trial of former Officer Chauvin, but get us up to date a little bit so we can dive in, if you don't mind. Thank you, Jessica. In case you've been off planet for the last year or so, Derek Chauvin is the white former police officer accused of murdering George Floyd. Now, Chauvin had been subject to 22 complaints or internal investigations during almost two decades of an officer before that incident last year. There are four other officers charged in the death of Floyd. There's an ongoing investigation of civil rights violations there. And on that day, just about a year ago, George Floyd allegedly used a counterfeit $20 bill to buy cigarettes. Floyd allegedly resisted arrest and appeared under the influence at the time. And after being placed in the back of a police car, squad car, he pushed himself out the other side of the car and said he was going to lie on the ground. Now, witnesses, there were bystanders, they took cell phone video showing Chauvin kneeling on George Floyd's neck for more than nine minutes. George Floyd was handcuffed and pinned to the ground at that time. Now, George Floyd, as we all know, died as a result of something that day, and that's what this trial is going to be about. Now, the medical examiner said that George Floyd's death was a homicide, but the officer's use of force and fentanyl were also underlying conditions there. The officers that were charged with aiding and abetting second-degree murder and second-degree manslaughter, their trial is set for August. Chauvin himself is facing second- and third-degree murder and second-degree manslaughter charges. Now, Jessica, what is each side arguing here now that this trial has started? Let's start with the prosecution. Joe, the prosecutors here are going to argue that Officer Chauvin was a substantial cause of George Floyd's death, that despite what the medical examiner said here, that there was fentanyl found in George Floyd's system, methamphetamines, that he had underlying health conditions, including heart disease and high blood pressure, that it's Officer Chauvin with his knee on George Floyd's neck that is a substantial cause of George Floyd's death. And how is the prosecution going to show that? They're going to put that video front and center. And they did in the opening statements. And Joe, I have to tell you, I've never seen the video from start to finish in one sitting. And it was very impactful. It's hard to watch. That's exactly what the prosecution wants. They want to say, look at the beginning of the video. George Floyd is alive. Look at the end of the video. George Floyd is dead. What happens in that video? Officer Chauvin's knee is on his neck. He's pleading. He's pleading for his mother. He's saying, I can't breathe. There are bystanders essentially telling him to let up on George Floyd. So that video will be a big part of the prosecution's case. And again, we're going to hear a lot about causation. And we did hear about it in the opening statements, whether or not 
Officer Chauvin's actions were the substantial cause of George Floyd's death. Now, one thing that it's important to remember, while there's really nothing usual about this case in the sense that it has really started a nationwide reckoning when it comes to systemic racism in the criminal justice system, and we don't typically have videos in these types of cases, when you do have officers on trial for use of excessive force, there are not often convictions. So I know that when people look at the video, the feeling is, again, George Floyd's alive at the beginning of the video. He's dead at the end of it. This is a slam dunk case. But it is important to remember that more often than not, these trials against police officers for excessive use of force are not, in fact, successful. And Joe, does that bring us to what the defense argued here today? does, but weren't there cases of Chauvin using unnecessarily stringent measures before in his history? Yeah, and that's part of what the prosecution is going to do here is to argue that this is not a one-off when it comes to Officer Chauvin, that in four arrests over the last six years, they're going to say he went beyond what was necessary, and they're going to show that he's used this type of restraint before, And that this is really part of a pattern of behavior for Officer Chauvin. The prosecutors want to show that he knew how to use appropriate force and did so in other circumstances. And he knew how to use inappropriate force. And that's what he did in this circumstance. Thank you very much, Jessica. And what is Chauvin's defense going to be here? Chauvin's defense here is really going to be that there is doubt as to what the cause of George Floyd's death is. And you saw Chauvin's defense attorney in the opening statements talk about the standard of proof, talk about reasonable doubt, which we'll focus on in a minute. But what Chauvin will also argue is that this was a reasonable use of force. Chauvin will say he didn't assault Floyd that he didn't intend to harm him. And in fact, if he did, there would be bruising on Floyd's neck and that there was no bruising in this case. He's going to argue that Floyd resisted arrest and that this use of force was his only option. He'll say that putting a knee on Floyd's neck is in fact an approved position and that Floyd died of a drug overdose and pre-existing conditions. And I think they're also going to bring in evidence that George Floyd was previously arrested. So that, in sum, is what the prosecution and the defense will argue. But this is just the beginning, and this could be a long trial. This could last about four weeks. And Jessica, you just used the words burden of proof. What is the burden of proof here? Well, this is a criminal case, so the burden of proof is proof beyond a reasonable doubt, which is the highest burden of proof we have in the legal system. Why? Because this isn't a civil case. This doesn't have to do with whether or not Officer Chauvin is going to have to pay money. This has to do with whether or not we're going to take his liberty away by putting him in prison. And therefore, we ask that the prosecution prove beyond a reasonable doubt that he committed these crimes. The prosecutor's duty is actually to prove two things. One, to show have a burden of production, meaning bringing forward enough evidence to prove that Chauvin committed these crimes, and also something called a burden of persuasion, which is convincing the jury, or if there's a judge trial, a, a court trial, the judge, that Chauvin in fact committed these crimes. So 
What is proof beyond a reasonable doubt? We've had trouble defining this for centuries. Which doubts are reasonable? Which doubts are too distant to give credence? Obviously, the defense is going to say, you must have some doubts about this and you're reasonable people. If you have some doubts, that's enough to say that we're going to acquit Officer Chauvin. And again, for a criminal trial, you need a unanimous jury. So the defense just needs one juror to say, well, I do have some doubts, and they are reasonable. The prosecution is going to say, look, reasonable doubt, sure, it's more than more likely than not, but it is an attainable threshold. And so I think we're going to see a lot of arguments in this case about what reasonable doubt really means. Okay, Jessica, thank you for that. Now, let's talk about that jury. We all know this trial is taking place in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Hennepin County is 74% white, and it's only 17% black or multiracial. Now, the seated jury in the Chauvin trial is composed of three black men, one black woman, and two who identify as multiracial. The balance identify as white, and the three alternates for this jury are also white. But there's a caveat there. Only one of those three black men is African-American. The two other are black immigrants. One of the jurors not chosen, he's identified only as juror 76, he was an African-American former soldier. Now, he'd lived in the neighborhood where George Floyd was killed, and during his jury interviews, he said that he had regularly experienced racism. Now, the defense attorney struck him from the jury out of concern that he would be biased against the Minneapolis police. Now, all this math means that half the jurors tasked with deciding whether or not Chauvin is guilty or not guilty will be white. But the racial overtones are much more fundamental than that. Given the violence and civil unrest in the summer of 2020, there is a lot at stake here. So, Jessica, given those things that are at stake, how important is the jury selection in this case? Incredibly important. Jury selection is often where cases are won and lost, and particularly a case like this where everybody is seeing it as a bellwether for so many important issues in our country. So, And you talked about the racial makeup of the jury, and that's inescapable because race is going to play such a big part in this trial. And the reason I'm laughing is not because it's in any way funny, but because the words race or African-American or black might never be mentioned in the trial, but it's just impossible to think anybody could separate themselves from, again, the nationwide reckoning that occurred, the protests that occurred as a result in part of George Floyd's death. One thing that I do think people need to be careful about is viewing race as a proxy for how people will vote. I think that does all of us, frankly, a disservice. The same thing is true when it comes to voters for political candidates. Uh, Black people are not a monolith. Asian Americans are not a monolith. And white people are not a monolith. And it lacks nuance to think, oh, if you're a person of color, then you will vote to convict Officer Chauvin. If you are a Caucasian person or a white person, then you'll vote to acquit. So diversity in the jury is important, but it's important because it really matters that people have faith in this jury, that they have faith in the process, that they think the process has integrity. And I believe that if there was an all-white jury or a nearly all-white jury, absolutely from the beginning people would have said this particular case is rigged. So what we're going to be looking to here is asking the jury not to be 
ignorant, but to be impartial. And I think I used that phrase in a prior podcast when we talked about this trial, that we're not asking them to ignore their life experiences or who they are. We're asking them to bring in those life experiences while they apply the facts to the law here. And again, they have their work cut out for them. Chauvin is charged with second and third degree murder and second degree manslaughter. Now, both sides must know this case is about more than just this particular case. So, Jessica, what are the implications and how long is this trial expected to last? Yeah, as I mentioned, I think it could last about a month. I think we could be looking at this trial as lasting throughout April. I mean, what are the implications? You know, how long is the podcast? We have set this up as a referendum on excessive force cases in America, whether African-Americans can get justice in our criminal justice system, the power of the Black Lives Matter movement. And that makes me nervous because one criminal case is not supposed to bear the weight of all of those really important issues. And one criminal case is supposed to be about whether or not Officer Chauvin did in fact commit these crimes, but it shouldn't try and answer all those more difficult questions that shouldn't didn't begin with this particular case and shouldn't end with them. We need to struggle with these questions for a lot longer than this trial will last. Agreed, Jessica. It's a very large societal yoke for this one trial to bear in terms of systemic racism in our country. But let's move on. We've got two topics today. The second one is the Georgia voting law that was signed into law last week. We had uh, Greg Bluestein on our program over the weekend to talk about what the law does and what the political impacts might be. And it was a really, really great episode. I encourage everyone to go back and take a listen to it. Bluestein's on the ground in Georgia. He joined us back in the early part of the... Uh, when was that, Jessica? Was that January when we had him talking about the runoff elections? Yes, it was. That was also a great episode. There's so much going on in Georgia. So many things hinged upon that. It's why the Democrats have control of the Senate. But the new voting law, the bill is called SB202. It's 98 pages long, and it's a grab bag of voter suppression ploys in the guise of what Georgia Republicans have said is an effort to prevent voter fraud in the aftermath of an election with demonstrably few examples of actual voter fraud. Now, what's in the nitty gritty of this bill? There's new photo ID requirements for absentee ballots or voting by mail. The new law grants state officials power to usurp control of local election boards. I'm sure the local election boards would love that. It limits the ability for voters to use drop boxes. And most perplexingly, in the state of Georgia, it is now a criminal offense to give food or water to voters waiting in line at polling stations. Now, that's what the law is. Is it legal? Now, I don't know. Jessica's going to talk about this in just a second. But there are two legal challenges, one filed on Monday, March 29th, and another filed last week. The latest suit argues that the law was, quote, clearly intended to and will have the effect of making it harder for lawful Georgia voters to participate in the state's elections and will, quote, impose these unjustifiable burdens disproportionately on the state's minority, young, poor and disabled citizens. Jessica, can you tell us about these suits? Oh, I wish I didn't have to. I wish we were not here. We should not be here for a bunch of different reasons, but here we are. So to answer your question, Joe, 
The suits bring up two big claims. First is that the Georgia law is unconstitutional because it violates the Equal Protection Clause. The second is that it's illegal because it violates what's left of the Voting Rights Act, Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act, that prohibits uh, voting practices that discriminate on the basis of race, color, or membership in a language minority group. And we don't know what's going to happen in those cases. But the reason I started my answer with we shouldn't be here is because we should not be here. And back in 2013, in the Shelby County case, where the Supreme Court voted by five to four to throw out half of the Voting Rights Act in dissent, just as Ruth Bader Ginsburg said, let me tell you what's going to happen. Those states that we used to watch over that had a history of problematic behavior that had a history of problems with voter registration and voter turnout, such that we required that any voting changes be, quote unquote, pre-cleared with the federal government, those states are going to start implementing suppressive voting laws. And guess what happened? It's 2021. And why did this happen in Georgia? It happened because President Biden won in Georgia, and then two Democrats won in the Senate runoffs. And that is going to sound like such a partisan statement. And I feel like I say this every single podcast, Joe, but this is not a partisan statement because there is no real other explanation here. Uh, This passed on a party line vote, as you said. Republicans have said this is needed to bolster the integrity of our system and to prevent voter fraud. And voter fraud was not found. There is no massive voter fraud. This is a solution. It's not in search of a problem. The problem is that Democrats are winning. And I just wish it didn't sound like a partisan statement because it is it has nothing to do with political ideology. And the reason I'm offended is because if you want to win elections, come forward with the best ideas. Don't come forward with laws that make it difficult for people who you think won't vote for you to actually show up at the ballot box. So I'll close my TED Talk, Joe, with this, which is there's two solutions here. One, courts need to put some meat on the bones of Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act, which is the section that still lives, the section that these two lawsuits were brought under in part. And two, it really is time for federal legislation to provide a floor of protection, a floor of safety for voters when it comes to voting rights. There is H.R. 1, It passed the House twice. It's waiting on the Senate. We're probably going to have to eliminate the filibuster in order for it to pass the Senate. But that's the other solution. We need federal legislation in this area. History tells us that. History is correct. And with that, I think I'm just going to push my soapbox to the side and uh, and get right off of it, if that works for you, Joe. (laughs) Get all the way off of that soapbox, Jessica. Thank you, everyone, for listening in. Stay tuned to Passing Judgment. We will tell you everything you need to know about the Derek Chauvin trial as it proceeds over the course of the next few weeks. Jessica, where can we find you on the socials? At Levinson Jessica on Twitter, the podcast at Past Judgment Pod on Twitter, at Passing Judgment Pod on Instagram. We will, we talked before we started taping, we will get on TikTok by popular demand. Uh, and you are on the socials at In Depth Day. And we're going to wish everybody a good day. And again, 
We so value your feedback. Please rate, review, etc. And we will talk to you soon.